the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I have to say that because it's always peculiar to start off the week on a Tuesday having taken Monday off. Well, I have to tell you, Dan and I celebrated our 38th wedding anniversary and we had a great time. Uh, Just spending time together, reflecting back over the last 38 years and making commitments for the next 38 or the next three or the next five, if the Lord wills and I live till death do us part. So we had a great time, had a great time celebrating Mother's Day with mom, and I think she was blessed. So it's been a great long weekend, but I have to admit, hitting the ground running and trying to catch up on everything is a bit of a challenge, so... I'll do my best. I'll just leave it at that. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Phyllis Bennett. Dr. Bennett is the director of the Women's Center for Ministry at Western Seminary. She's also the coordinator for Women's Transformational Leadership Academic Concentration. And we're going to talk with her about how COVID-19 has impacted the seminary, her work in particular, and the conference that just um, got in before we were all locked down, Ignite. Now, you might be surprised to learn that the planning for that, the prayer for that, begins as early as, well, this past week. We'll talk with her a little bit about that. We're also going to talk with Tyson Langhofer with Alliance Defending Freedom. He is senior counsel and director of the Center for Academic Freedom on a lawsuit that's now been filed against Chemeketa Community College for censoring pro-life students' speech. And we'll tell you all the details on that case. And we'll talk with Scott Rank author of History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. The book is published by Regnery History. And you might be surprised who made the list and who's not on the list and what we can learn from these leaders who were legitimately insane. Now, we use that word a lot now in our political circles to try to denigrate the leader that we oppose. We're going to talk about those who were genuinely, clinically, medically insane. So we'll get into that with Scott Rank later in today's program. First, taking a look at some of the news, we're going to look all the way back to uh, Friday and move forward. On Friday, a Dallas salon owner, Shelly Luther, who opted to serve time in jail after violating a local coronavirus business closure order, said in an exclusive interview that she stands by her decision not to apologize to the judge. That was the last thing I was going to do, honestly, she says. I just couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to apologize, she told host John Kennedy, hours after the Texas Supreme Court ordered her release. Now, Luther said she was feeling much better after being allowed to go back home and doesn't regret her decision not to apologize as requested by State District Judge Eric Moy. Judge Moy gave Luther the option of avoiding prison if she apologized for what he described as her selfish behavior, paid a fine, and kept her business closed until Friday. Now, we're talking about a matter of days. Uh, when hair salons across Texas can open with restrictions. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, State Attorney General Ken Paxton, and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick had all called for Luther's release and said Moy uh, had abused his discretion, stressing that Luther was keeping her business open in order to feed her family. Michigan Governor Whitmer extended the stay-at-home order until May the 28th, but with exceptions in that state. And California's Governor 
Gavin Newsom has let more businesses reopen after revealing staggering budget deficit. Top uh, Obama officials acknowledged that they knew of um, no empirical evidence of a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia in the 2016 election. Despite their concerns and suspicions, newly released transcripts of interviews from the House Intelligence Committee's Russia investigation reveal. Well, Fox News first reported on Wednesday night that the transcripts would show this. The officials' responses align with the results of former special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, which found no evidence of criminal coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia in 2016, while not reaching a determination on obstruction of justice. Well, the transcripts, which were released by House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, revealed top Obama officials were questioned over whether they had seen evidence of such collusion, coordination, or conspiracy, the issue that drove the FBI's initial case and later the special counsel probe. Now, the father and son were arrested and charged with murdering Ahmed Arbery, whose shooting death in February has sparked protests. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation announced on Thursday night. Investigators said Travis McMichael, 34, was with his father, Gregory, 64, when he shot and killed Arbery outside Brunswick, Georgia, in February on the 23rd. The McMichaels are white and Arbery was black. Video posted online by a local radio station earlier this week sparked outcry and calls for police to arrest the father and son, who had said they thought Arbery, 25, was a burglar. The video showed a black man jogging down a residential street in his own neighborhood, I might add, before encountering two white men and a pickup truck parked on the side of the road. He appeared to jog around their vehicle into the road's shoulder, but as he neared the front, a gunshot rang out and the jogger was seen staggering and struggling with a man holding a shotgun or rifle. They moved out of frame and another shot was heard. They came back into view with a long-barreled gun held by the jogger's uh, midsection and a third shot sounded off. Thankfully, murder charges have since been filed. Well, court documents um, from 1996 alludes to Tara Reid's accusation against then-Senator Biden. A court document from that uh, year shows former Senate staffer Tara Reid told her ex-husband she was sexually harassed while working for Joe Biden in 1993. The declaration exclusively obtained by the Tribune of San Luis Obispo, California, doesn't say Biden committed the harassment, nor does it mention Reid's more recent allegations of sexual assault. Reid's then-husband, Theodore Dronin, wrote the court declaration. Dronin, at the time, was contesting a restraining order Reed filed against him days after he filed for divorce, according to Superior Court records. From another story, I want to say you and I were there, Joe Biden. Please step forward and be held accountable. That's a quote from uh, Ms. Reed uh, speaking to Megyn Kelly in her first on-camera account since Mr. Biden denied her allegation last week. You should not be running on character for the president of the United States. Guy Benson uh, points out that Reed, a longtime Democrat, says she believes Dr. Ford would be willing to testify under oath against Biden, including cross-examination, and would take a polygraph, Biden, if, um, yeah, would take a polygraph, um, adding that she's not a criminal. And from David Harsinyi, until this week, no one at the major outlets had any interest in talking to Tara Reid. Now she's going to be bashed for not talking to the right people. Meanwhile, Senator Dianne Feinstein joined a long list of female Democrats who find Dr. Ford believable and Reid absurd. Really quite, uh, quite interesting. Well, the Justice Department has dropped uh, General Flynn's criminal case and court documents being filed last Friday, the Justice Department said it's dropping the case after a considered review of all the facts and circumstances of the case, including newly discovered and disclosed information. The documents were obtained by the Associated Press 
The Justice Department said it had concluded that Flynn's interview by the FBI was untethered to and unjustified by the FBI's counterintelligence investigation into Mr. Flynn, and that in it, the interview on January the 24th of 2017 was conducted without any legitimate investigative basis. If you're outraged Flynn's case is being dropped, you need to answer two things. Is the Logan Act valid predicate for an investigation? And set aside the, the Flynn plea, he has bankrupted, uh, has been bankrupted by legal fees, and they threatened his son. Now that's the actual evidence the FBI had he lied. Uh, and it goes on from there. Again, the uh, case dropped against General Flynn. Well, the Texas uh, salon owner that was released from jail uh, had more to say. We'll talk uh, about her interview with Shan, uh, Sean Hannity after being released later in the program. And the curve is flat on new cases since the first week in April and deaths since the end of the second week in April. The coronavirus curve has flattened for nearly a month now. Dr. Scott Gottlieb says daily positive uh, cases of COVID-19 as a percent of total daily tests continues to fall nationally. A very good sign as COVID testing expands. Declining positivity could be a leading indicator of an epidemic starting to decline. 10% is still high, but it's coming down at a steady pace. Deaths among food workers are low, as the story notes in the Washington Times, saying the death toll represents a per capita fatality rate of roughly 5 per 100,000 UFCW workers in the U.S. and Canada. The rate is lower than that of the general population, even though these frontline workers did not benefit until mid-April from widespread orders for people to wear masks in public and take other robust safety measures. Meanwhile, Jerry Bauer he looks at uh, how some states are cracking down on churches. In fact, we're going to have a conversation about that later this week and whether or not lawsuits filed against the governor in the state of Oregon and elsewhere are justified when churches say we want to regain the right to meet in our facilities. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just uh, uh, earlier today, we learned that Oregon's coronavirus uh, update for the 12th of May, which of course is today, um, there have been no new cases reported of COVID-19 deaths in the state of Oregon. However, there are 61 new COVID-19 cases. Let me clarify 61 new COVID-19 cases. The death toll is unchanged in the state of Oregon. And as I was just sharing, that uh, curve has flattened across the country in some encouraging ways. Uh, But as Dr. Fauci in his uh, uh, statements earlier today um, suggested, we don't want to respond too quickly and be too optimistic because the next round might be coming uh, as a consequence. Well, three Russian doctors have fallen from windows at three different hospitals. Just as doctors have become outspoken about their long hours and lack of protective equipment as the coronavirus surges in that country, I'm grateful that we honor and uh, protect um, as much as is possible healthcare workers here. And young Republicans, according to a new uh, survey, are sticking with the party due to opposition to abortion. In interviews with two dozen Republicans age 18 to 23, almost all of them, while expressing fundamentally conservative views, identified at least one major issue on which they disagree with the party line. Times reporter Maggie Astor writes, but more often than not, they said one issue kept them committed to the party, and that's abortion, or rather the pro-life position opposing abortion. Well, the pandemic is not expected to lead to a baby boom, as some had predicted, for a variety of reasons, including general stress and not knowing 
um, where funds will come from and for that matter uh, how the disease is transmitted. I've seen conflicting uh, stories on that particular way of transmitting the disease. Well, U.S. employers devastated by the coronavirus pandemic cut 20.5 million jobs in April, a record-shattering number that pushed unemployment to 14.7 percent, the highest level since the Great Depression, a new report from the U.S. Labor Department revealed on Friday. However, U.S. equity markets still rallied as states forged ahead with reopening plans. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has issued an emergency use authorization for a rapid diagnostic gene editing tool in detecting the coronavirus. The Cambridge, Massachusetts-based engineering uh, biology company, rather, Sherlock Biosciences, developed CRISPR-SARS-CoV-2 kit to detect the virus in about one hour. And Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said on Thursday that he and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi are working on a Rooseveltian-type stimulus bill as a follow-up to the first uh, aid package that became law in late May, or rather late March. We'll talk more about that later in the program as well. Well, the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA, has announced that all officers will wear facial protection as security screening checkpoints, a protective health safety measure in the nation, uh, the national fight against COVID-19. Meanwhile, Amtrak will require passengers to, well, to wear face coverings beginning next week, starting on Monday. And the coronavirus pandemic, American farmers are being forced to pour out milk crush eggs, toss fresh fruit and vegetables, euthanize livestock, and plow under perfectly robust crops. Meanwhile, financially beleaguered Americans are lining up at store at food banks in unprecedented numbers. Humanitarian leaders fear a global starvation pandemic is burgeoning. I would say that's an overstatement, but shortages may be in our future. And as the second round of personal uh, paycheck protection loans are being doled out by the Small Business Administration, entrepreneurs who are dealing with smaller community banks and credit unions are seeing their loans much more quickly than those applying through larger banks. And after attributing a spike in coronavirus cases to so-called coronavirus parties earlier this week, officials in southeastern Washington State County have now walked back the comments saying the gatherings were innocent endeavors. Frontier Airlines has announced that all passengers, as well as all crew members, would uh, need to undergo a touchless temperature screening um, prior to boarding starting the 1st of June. Frontier becomes the first U.S. airline to mandate temperature checks of passengers. And although the pandemic has caused thousands of people who work in the uh, film industry to face an uncertain future, many are already looking ahead to gauge how much the business will change once production is allowed to begin again. And a journalist from CBS Chicago affiliate uh, was mocked on Twitter for a report that urged citizens to call 911 on the ice cream man for breaking coronavirus standards. Well, yesterday, President Trump, or I should say Sunday, President Trump reported on Monday, escalated his attacks on former President Obama by tweeting Obamagate and implying that he is linked to the FBI's much criticized handling of the now dropped Michael Flynn case. Last week, Attorney General William Barr's Justice Department dismissed the case against Flynn, Trump's first national security advisor, which was seen as the key prosecution from Robert Mueller's investigation into the Trump campaign. Trump, along with other Republicans, seized on the decision and framed it as an example of a Democrat-manufactured plot to remove him from office. He retweeted Eli Lake, a columnist at Bloomberg, who said he has been uh, reviewing the interview transcripts that were recently released in the collusion investigation. Lake wrote, and I'm quoting, it's now clear why every Republican on Representative Adam Schiff's committee in 2019 called for his resignation. He knew the closed-door witnesses didn't support his innuendo and fakery on Russian collusion, 
end quote. Sidney Powell, one of Flynn's lawyers, uh, told Fox News Sunday Morning Futures that FBI agents did their best to hide their investigation and attempted to entrap Flynn. She mentioned a meeting in January the 5th in 2017 at the White House that included Obama, then FBI Director James Comey, then Director of National Intelligence James Clapper and former CIA Director John Brennan. Powell said the whole thing was orchestrated and set up within the FBI, Clapper, Brennan, and in the Oval Office meeting that day with President Obama. She told the anchor, Maria Bartiromo. Bartiromo asked Powell if she believed the scandal reached up to Obama, and Powell responded, absolutely. Trump later tweeted Obamagate, indicating that he believes that Obama worked to undermine his presidency. And NBC has admitted that Chuck Todd's Meet the Press deceptively edited Barr's remarks on Flynn. Well, a spokesperson on Sunday denied Vice President Pence is in quarantine just days after a member of his team tested positive for the coronavirus. Vice President Pence will continue to follow the advice of the White House Medical Unit and is not in quarantine, the spokesperson Devin O'Malley said in his statement. Additionally, Vice President Pence has tested negative every day and plans to be at the White House tomorrow. Bloomberg and the Associated Press, citing sources, reported Sunday that Pence was self-isolating and limiting his exposure to other people. Pence's press secretary, Katie Miller, was one of two staffers to test positive for COVID-19 in recent days. And as many as uh, 38 children in New York City have contracted a rare disease linked to the coronavirus, but doctors are having a hard time diagnosing it. That's according to Mayor Bill de Blasio on Sunday. Cases of Kawasaki disease have affected children five and under. The disease has caused inflammation of the heart and blood vessels. Typical symptoms included fever, rash, swelling of the hands and feet, irritation and redness in the whites of the eyes, swollen lymph glands in the neck, and irritation and inflammation in the mouth, lips, and throat, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Still, there's been no official criteria for diagnosing the deadly disease, and health officials have been scrambling to identify children who may be affected by it. Panic over the murder hornet, by the way, is leading some people to kill essential bee populations, according to experts. And no, there are no murder bees in the state of Oregon, we heard earlier today. So panic not. Some people are starting to kill regular bees out of fear. Trying to decide what to uh, mention and what not to mention. I have so much news here, it's quite overwhelming. While Democrats are seeking to use the crisis of COVID-19 to change voting laws, John Fund notes the proposal, including requiring that a mail-in ballot be automatically sent to every voter, which would allow people to both register and vote on Election Day. It would also permit ballot harvesting, whereby political operatives go door-to-door collecting ballots that they then deliver to election officials. All of these would dramatically reduce safeguards protecting election integrity. But... According to John Fund, he says liberals see a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sweep away the current system. It took Oregon many years to set up its vote-by-mail system, and we're thinking of flipping the switch in a very short period of time. Out of necessity, perhaps, but nonetheless, um, it's a legitimate concern. Senator Cotton says the Chinese pressured the World Health Organization to downplay the risks of COVID-19, saying, I don't know about all the specific details of those reports, but there's no question that Xi Jinping and senior officials in the Chinese Communist Party are pressuring the WHO all the way back to December to undersell the risk of this virus. Now, we've heard that statement over and over again. Investigations are underway. 
And perhaps there'll be more specific clarification at some point in the not-too-distant future. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, later this hour, we'll talk with Phyllis Bennett. Dr. Bennett is the director of Women's Center for Ministry. She's the coordinator of the transformational, uh, the Women's Transformational Leadership Academic Concentration. We'll talk with her about how uh, this all is impacting Western and particularly women's studies. And Ignite, you might be surprised to learn that already plans are being made for 2021. Phyllis Bennett coming up later this hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've been talking about No Safe Spaces, the uh, documentary. Uh, there's going to be a Facebook Live event titled Not Allowed to Laugh, Free Speech and the Death of Comedy. That's coming up tomorrow, the 13th, 4 o'clock p.m. Pacific time from the creators of No Safe Spaces. Eric Metaxas is going to host this event with the stars of No Safe Spaces, Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager, with special guest comedian Kareth Foster, a lively hour-long conversation about the state of comedy and free speech today and the challenges of making the movie No Safe Spaces. If you want to be a part of this event, please follow No Safe Spaces on Facebook, Questions for Eric, Dennis, and Adam can be asked on Facebook using hashtag NoSafeSpaces, so you can be in on this whole thing. You can also get your DVD or stream NoSafeSpaces now and save 25% while supplies last at NoSafeSpaces.com with a promo code SAVE25. That's NoSafeSpaces.com. You might want to watch that tonight if you haven't seen it. And then the uh, special hosted event tomorrow. Don't miss not. Uh, not Allowed to Laugh, Free Speech and the Death of Comedy. That's coming up tomorrow, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on No Safe Spaces Facebook page. A safe space for laughter and for free speech. There are sadly fewer and fewer of them. Well, there was a lot of eager anticipation of the Senate's virtual hearing that took place uh, earlier today with four top doctors from the president's coronavirus task force. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer urged Dr. Anthony Fauci to let it rip suggesting there was something behind the scenes that he needed to finally get out. Well, Fauci, of course, is the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He testified for the first time before the Senate Health Committee today about the way Trump has responded to the coronavirus pandemic. I think uh, Schumer was disappointed that there was nothing ripping. Uh, this will be the most uh, one of the first opportunities for Dr. Fauci to tell the American people the unvarnished truth without the president lurking over his shoulder. Schumer had said earlier, Fauci was joined by Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Stephen Hahn, the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, and Admiral Brett uh, Giroir, the, assist, the assistant secretary for health. He testified via teleconference the first time in Senate history due to social distancing restrictions put in place to prevent the spread of COVID-19. The need for a virtual conference became even more paramount after two White House staffers tested positive for COVID-19. The New York Times reported late Monday that Fauci will warn the country will, uh, will risk needless suffering and death if it's opened up too quickly. Well, he did make allusion to that, but I think he fell short of what the New York Times and Mr. Schumer were hoping for. Also in the news over the last several days, President Trump on Monday escalated his fraud, his feud, well, let's, let's say that correctly, escalated his feud with former President Obama, insisting during a news conference that his predecessor committed a crime, but refusing to dive into details. When asked by a reporter in the Rose Garden what crime he had uh, committed, uh, it's been uh, going on from... Um, before I got elected, the president said, and it's a disgrace that it happened. 
You look at now all of this information that's being released, and from what I understand, that's only the beginning, end quote. Well, you can sort through that yourselves. But when pressed for details, the commander-in-chief told the Washington Post reporter, you know the crime. The crime is very obvious to everybody. All you have to do is read the newspaper, except yours, end quote. Well, the president on Sunday quoted a tweet that accused Obama of using his last weeks in office to target incoming officials and sabotage the new administration. The biggest political crime in American history by far, Trump added, later tweeting, Obamagate. Well, on Friday, Obama weighed in on the FBI controversy surrounding former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, declaring the rule of law is at risk after the Justice Department moved to drop the charges against the former National Security Advisor. At the same time, new details emerged about what the former president knew about the case against Flynn in the last days of his administration. And related developments, the Department of Justice's Flynn filing Uh, renews the focus on mysterious Susan Rice emails during that transition. And Sean Hannity says that many current and former officials have reason to be worried after Flynn revelations. Molly Hemingway says that Obama Comey started hatching their plan in early 2017. Well, the United Nations has predicted that the worldwide economic destruction caused by coronavirus outbreak may end up killing more people than the actual disease itself. In a report on Monday, the virus outbreak has decimated the world economy and threatens to the lives of millions around the globe who've been emerged, uh, emerging from poverty. The Los Angeles Times reported that economists forecast a global recession that will result in up to 420 million people plunging into extreme poverty or making less than $2 a day. The U.S. has seen its unemployment levels reach levels not seen since the Great Depression, while vulnerable, poorer countries consider the virus impact on those already impoverished. As of late Monday night, the coronavirus has been blamed for 4.1 million cases and 280,000 deaths. The World Bank estimated that the coronavirus will likely cause the first increase in global poverty since 1998. And in other related developments, the president has ordered the federal retirement money invested in the Chinese equities to be pulled. And nearly 100 celebrities who are outspoken against Kavanaugh are silent on Biden, according to a new study. And Hyatt Regency, they're laying off some 1,300 employees as pandemic has crippled the travel industry. The National Intelligence Director Richard Grinnell is declassifying the, the Flynn documents, a list of Obama administration officials involved in the unmasking of the retired lieutenant general uh, following his recorded conversation with a Russian envoy are now in Attorney General Bill Barr's hands. And from another story, people are getting nervous. Obama officials and Obama himself have lashed out in recent days at the Department of Justice uncovering of their malfeasance, ironically claiming that exposing them is somehow a threat to the rule of law. And a look at the disturbing um, effort from former President Obama to hide FBI activities from Trump can be found on The Federalist. Meanwhile, uh, documents, let me turn this page very quickly as I have far too many of them, already have uh, Schiff under a microscope. Among the things they have revealed is how Obama officials testified there was no evidence of Russia collusion with the Trump team, despite what those same officials were saying publicly, claiming there was. It also exposed Schiff for the contemptible fraud that he is, says redstate.com. It also exposed Schiff for the contemptible fraud that he is, showing uh, once again his repeated claim that he knew of evidence of collusion and that it was false. It exclaims um, Schiff's panic and why he didn't want them out. Congressman Trey Gowdy now admits it was a mistake to defend the FBI during the Russia investigation. With New York showing great improvement, 
Another site showed the fewest deaths in a day since March, reporting another big drop in new coronavirus uh, coronavirus or COVID-19 cases. From Scott Gottlieb, we always expected to see an uptick in the new COVID-19 cases as states reopen and in Uh, And the data seems to be indicating that cases are rising in reopened states. Some of these increases are a function of more testing, but some rise in new cases uh, as states reopen should also be expected. Another indication this virus has been uh, here longer than we knew. Ohio had it in January. Turns out a lot of people were staying home before the government told them to uh, from another story in the uh, 538. And John Fun says deaths caused by people blocked from uh, needed health care should not be labeled COVID-19 deaths. They're more appropriately uh, tagged lockdown deaths. And a shocking 39% of deaths are at nursing homes and assisted living facilities, a subject that dominated the um, earlier hearing today in the U.S. Senate, again, for the first time uh, done online. Well, the officials who were slow to Uh, act in the Ahmad case uh, are now being accused of corruption in the past Uh, from the store. And these are the Georgia officials for the the past five years. We've done some deep reporting in the same um, uh, place. Arbery was murdered. It involved the same players, the same problems, and now growing outrage. When I first saw this case happening in Glenn County, I immediately thought back to other cases where the DA's office and police department collaborated a little too closely with each other to cover up some for some of the officer's misconduct, attorney and legal analyst Esther Pinich says. Now, this was not an officer-involved shooting, but she's making reference to other events that were. Dr. Albert Moeller, referring to the innocent black man jogging in his own neighborhood who was shot dead back in February, says, The story is one of those convoluted and complicated tales, but it's also one of those historical occurrences that reminds us of the precious nature of the rule of law and just how horrifying it is when the rule of law is violated. Well, there are prisoners in Los Angeles who are trying desperately to get COVID-19 to force their release, and this tweet includes a video of them trying to get the uh, trying to get the virus in order to get release. From another story, deputies have been reviewing surveillance video trying to see if the inmates were socially distancing and using their masks. When lo and behold, he stumbled across an effort, um, a footage, in fact, uh, that was very troubling in an effort to try to gain release. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Phyllis Bennett. She's a doctor of ministry, or earned a doctorate of ministry. She's the director of Women's Center for Ministry, coordinator of the Women's Transformational Leadership Academic Concentration. We'll talk about how this new normal is impacting her work at Western and the planning of Ignite 2021. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, we've been talking to various people from our community to find out how this pandemic is impacting the work they do. And I couldn't help but think of Phyllis Bennett, who holds a doctorate in ministry. She's the director of the Women's Center for Ministry and coordinator of the Women's Transformational Leadership Academic Concentration on uh, how she's navigating this new normal, how it's impacting uh, Western Seminary. And it may be surprising to you to learn that events like Ignite, the Women's Conference, really begin the, the preparation, the planning, and the prayer as early as, well, May. So I wanted to have Phyllis join us to talk a little bit about how all of this is impacting her as an academic. Phyllis Bennett, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Georgine. It's great to be here. Now, first, I yeah. have to ask you personally, how are you faring with all of this? Are you well? 
I, I am well. Dave is well. Um, our son in um, Central Asia has COVID, and so does his whole family, and so does oh. his whole expat team. But they're all going through it together, kind of like back when you cut, cut the, you know, the chicken pox together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're all going to go through it together. And Johnny has a light case, which we're really grateful for because he has, he has um, um, a bad asthma. So God is, God's hand has been gracious and good, and I'm so thrilled. Oh, so well, I'm glad, the- glad to hear that. That gives me an opportunity to pray for, for them specifically. Yes. yes, thank you. Thank you. Yes, and life at Western has changed radically. We've gone online, uh, lots of Zoom classes, um, and that's been fun. I taught a speaking class by Zoom to 14 wonderful participants, uh, training them to exposit God's Word, and 11 of them gave 20-minute talks by Zoom and was was just really wonderful. We thought we were going to go to campus, but then the campus shut down that particular weekend, and so... um, yeah, and so uh, classes are up, actually, in enrollment this summer. A lot of people want to take online classes or, or Zoom classes, which, mm-hmm. is, which is really fun. So, um, yeah, and um, then I, uh, as far as Revive and Ignite, I just left Friday. I led a meeting, a Zoom meeting of close to 30 women to brainstorm, prayerfully brainstorm together. I thought, Lord, how is this going to work? And we broke down into our usual small group. Um, using breakout rooms, came back and whiteboarded together. We began with worship and just speaking God's heart, and he and our, our themes have been birthed. So we're really, really thrilled. It's um, yeah, so it's a whole new Zoom world. I have two Bible studies on Tuesday, and I have a group of older women that I. I one of the things I found out early on is that older women, because of technology, they shy away from Zoom, and I thought I'm going to help my older friends get over the sphere. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, I've pulled them together just two times. The second time was for a birthday party just this past week for one of them. And um, it's just fun to bless people who are sheltering in place and alone and just really need a, a boost and a lift. So, you know, I, kind of, I so appreciate your attitude seeing this as an opportunity. I mean, obviously there are things that we have to do differently. There are things that we cannot do But to see the opportunity that God has still presented for us and to seize um, the opportunity to help those who might struggle with the technology, that blesses my heart uh, to hear you say that. Now, again, I think it might be surprising to some of our listeners uh, to know that even if we weren't quarantined, uh, Revive and Ignite would have been planned this early uh, and, and to know that it this, these events are prayed over, they're planned over many, many months. Uh, so the culmination that people come uh, to an event is only a small part of what's already been invested. Can you describe just a little bit what the, the process is like in uh, bringing women together who are prayerfully considering, Lord, what would you have us focus on in the coming year? Uh, what that process looks like when we actually meet or from here Either on. way, just how, how that process yeah. works. Yeah, well, I just described, you know, that we, we come together and pray and we did that by Zoom. We could, we greeted each other and said hello and then prayed together and then um, uh, spent some time worshiping and just asking God what was his heart for the city. We wanted, we wanted to be his event, his events. And so mm-hmm. we're asking what is he seeing? So um, 
And then uh, we went, broke down into breakout rooms and kept praying and processing and then came back and whiteboarded. And lo and behold, they were birthed. So here are our themes uh, uh, for Revive. We'll be um, uh, Revive, uh, a call to persevere. Mm. Um, and that will be in November. And then in uh, for March, it will be um, Ignite, a call uh, to awaken. And um, we just feel like that God is calling the body of Christ to keep persevering during these yes. months of transition. Where, and, and the better we felt like the better we are persevering when we come out of it and we get to connect more greatly with the, uh, uh, those who don't know Christ, we'll be able to help them to see how wonderfully we've persevered um, as others have struggled. And we get opportunities, uh, short opportunities, like with neighbors to talk with them. But uh, eventually we're going to have significant conversations. What was it like for you? What was it like for you? And I just hope that we come through this with that persevering spirit. Um, and Whitney Willard, who is one of our um, speakers from a couple years ago, um, she she has um, uh, she has been sheltering in place for a long time um, because she has and I'm uh, Lyme's disease and yeah. um, she's the one that felt like God was calling us to persevere. I thought that was really beautiful. So um, yeah, so that's been great. And then uh, I spend my whole summer meeting with speakers. I will do that by Zoom this summer. I usually drive to them and you know have coffee with them, but. I'll be doing that by Zoom and getting all the speakers on board by August 1st so they can get their lab descriptions and their bios to us by September, by um, August 15th. And then Amanda gets, I uh, want my wonderful admin, will get the, um, uh, the website going by September 1st. And we're, we're off and running. <laughs> so. oh, that's, that's exciting to think ahead and to imagine that we will most likely have an opportunity to be together again, to worship in close proximity to one another. And, oh, I so look forward to that. Me too. Me too. It would be really, really wonderful. Now, you are um, working in a seminary environment, and so you're working with women who are pursuing uh, ministry and academic um, credentials. Has it been challenging for your students uh, to move from uh, in-person lectures to online. I mean, this is a presumably a generation of people who are more savvy and, and for whom this would be more comfortable. Has it been less challenging for you than, say, some of the um, schools in our community where that's been a real struggle? Well, I only taught this one class this spring. There will be another class taught by a different uh, instructor this summer. My class is taught in two weekends. One was in January. The second one when they're supposed to present their talk, was in March. And we thought we were going to be able to meet on campus. And I was going to go and swab down the desks and the doorknobs and <laughs> <laughs> rotate them to the, to the restroom. And, and Chuck, um, who is our academic dean, um, emailed me on the Friday morning when the class was supposed to start. He said, you cannot go to campus. You've got to do, I was going to do Friday by Zoom, but you must do both days by Zoom because of what the governor was coming down with. And so um, I, I felt like they adjusted quite well. Two were going to do their talks on Friday by Zoom because they were living with vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. But everybody else wanted to go to campus and give their talks in person. And so I waited till those two gave their talks. They did a great job. And I said, now, wasn't that fun? 
because the rest of you are going to do that tomorrow. <laughs> so they adjusted really well. And I am telling you, the class bonded so much. By the end of the time, they said, I said, would you like to have a reunion in just about five or six weeks so we see how everybody's doing? So we did that, you know, just uh, such, and I've never done that before with a class, but it was really fun just to Zoom again and really have a chance to, to share with one another. Mm. So yeah, well, I, I see lots of lots of benefits of this, and can um, I, I don't know if you've uh, read the article by Andy Crouch on uh, challenging leaders in the church and the business community yes. and um, looking at is this a blizzard? Is uh, the one-time event or a winter or is this a mini ice age? And looking at how much change needs to happen and that we need to be thinking in the context of change. So I keep asking the Lord those kinds of questions of, you know, the priority of leaders must be to set aside confidence in their, in our previous uh, playbooks as quickly as possible, as possible and write um, ones that honor our mission uh, and make sure that we're looking at uh, things might look entirely different when we get on the other side of this. So I'm yeah. asking a lot of those questions. I'm married to a man who works for the Lausanne movement. They're asking lots of those questions. In fact, all their international conferences um, have been shut down all the way through uh, 2020 and possibly into 2021. So they're looking at virtual conferences. You know, I know with the fall, um, I'm hoping we're all together for Revive, but, you know, they predicted a spike in the fall. Who knows? Maybe they'll say we have to shelter in place. But that's not that's not going to keep us from moving forward. We'll have a virtual conference, and yeah. I hope it's safe. But we're planning. We're saying, okay, Lord, let us stay flexible. Let us hear your spirit. Let us you lead us and guide us and show us what direction you want us to go in. And I felt that same um, sense of anticipation from the 30 leaders I was with on Friday by Zoom. It was really very exciting. Oh, that's exciting yeah. to hear. Well, I appreciate your diligence in continuing to serve the community as you do so well, and in particular the women in our community who are seeking to honor God um, with their minds and in this area of ministry that you've called them to. And I look forward to hearing more in the days ahead about both Revive and Ignite. How might we pray for you, Phyllis? Uh, well, as I start to meet with speakers, I think that's the main thing that I would really hear which one is supposed to do, which breakout. I really want the Lord's discernment leading me and guiding me one step at a time. And I'm also writing a study on, on Moses. I finished one on Joseph and I have a little group that meets with me on Tuesdays, and they're willing to work through the Moses study with me. So those two things are my summer projects, and looking forward to it. Yeah, well, we'll we'll definitely do that. Phyllis, thank you so much for joining us today. Good to thank hear your you voice. So much. <laughs> Great to hear your voice too. Happy thirty-eight, by the way. <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate that. Once again, okay. Phyllis Bennett uh, holds a doctorate in ministry. She's the director of Women's Center for Ministry, coordinator for the Women's Transformational Leadership Ap Leadership Academic Concentration on the New Normal at uh, Western Seminary, and the planning that's already begun for Revive and Ignite. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show second hour. We're glad to have you with us. Coming up later in the program, we'll talk with Scott Rank. He's the author of History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. The book is published by Regnery History. That's coming up in our next segment here on the Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, Alliance Defending Freedom Attorneys, representing a pro-life student group at Chemeketa Community College, filed a lawsuit in federal court on Tuesday to challenge the college's speech policies that restrict outdoor speech to two very small areas of the 100-acre campus. And it requires students to secure permission at least two weeks in advance before speaking in those very small areas. In fact, less than 1.5% of the 100-acre campus. Well, here to talk with us about this lawsuit is um, Tyson Langhofer. He's with Alliance Defending Freedom. He's a senior counsel and director of the Center for Academic Freedom on the Chemeketa Community College suit that has now been filed. Welcome, and thank you for joining us, Tyson. Thanks so much for having me, Georgine. I suppose we shouldn't be altogether surprised because we have our ear to the ground, but uh, explain what happened at Chemeketa Community College and how unique this is on college campuses or how common it is becoming. Sure. You know, uh, I think the only permit a student needs to speak freely on a public campus is the First Amendment. But unfortunately, what we're seeing across the country is that uh, public colleges and universities are essentially uh, stifling speech by requiring students to obtain permission before speaking on, on these open areas of campus. And not only that, many times, as with Chemeca, they're actually limiting the areas on campus in which they can speak even after they get permission. And so that's what's happening here. We represent Marco Sanchez and Emma Howell, who lead the Students for Life chapter, chapter at Chemeca Community College. And Students for Life is a, is a great organization. They love to yes. peacefully engage and persuade their peers while supporting pregnant and parenting classmates. And they want to talk about resources that are available for their pregnant uh, classmates. But they're, they're really stifled from doing so because, again, they're limited to speaking in these two small zones. And you actually have to get permission two weeks in advance. Um, and that's not... Um, not only not constitutional, but it's not practical for a, a college student to have to figure out when they can go out two weeks in advance and, and speak in this very small area of campus rather than just now, let me ask walking you, between classes, things like that. Right, right. Let me ask you, is this exclusive to this pro-life um, group or are there other groups on campus or every other group on campus? Um, are they also subject to these uh, these restrictions? So this policy actually applies to all student groups on campus. Um, so it's not just specific to the Students for Life, but the, the problem with most of these policies is that they grant discretion to administrators to determine who they're going to enforce it against, whether to grant a permit or whether to deny a permit. And so what that does is that it allows the college officials to determine which ideas get spoken on campus and who gets preferential treatment. And the Constitution it makes very clear that the government cannot prefer one speaker over another, and that's why it doesn't allow the government to require a prior permit before speaking in a public area of campus like a public college. Now, I, I apparently have misunderstood the purpose of college and university where the vigorous exchange of ideas uh, is encouraged in order to develop one's critical thinking and ability to communicate. So uh, apparently we're redefining what this experience is supposed to be when you have college campuses limiting what students can say to one another on topics they deem uh, controversial or political, or I, I'm not sure how they're defining them. This turns on its head what the college experience is supposed to be about, does it not? Absolutely, it does. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, uh, the the Supreme Court has has said numerous times, it's called our public colleges, the marketplace of ideas. And it's said that, you know, it, it is um, 
discussed how important they are to forming what it is about our society that makes us unique. And so as you know, we should be encouraging these different voices and we should be encouraging groups like Students for Life who are looking to simply share a message of hope with students who may be in a difficult situation. And instead of making it difficult for them, why don't we make it easier for them by removing these barriers? And, and that's what we're trying to do. You know, the Students for Life group just wants to be treated like everybody else and be able to, to uh, uh, go out and speak freely um, and not, not have these barriers placed on their public college campus. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as uh, was mentioned in the press release that I read, these policies are preventing the students from engaging in spontaneous expression and from promoting their events. And I would think every student group, whether you would agree with them or not, will benefit when the uh, college says, you know, that's what we're going to, we're going to engage in the marketplace of ideas and the free exchange of ideas, whether or not they're controversial. Now, a suit has been filed. What happens uh, now and what are you asking Shemekata to do? Yeah, so the next step is for the unit or for the college to to file an answer to our complaint, and they've got some time to do that, um, probably about 30 days or so. Uh, but what we're asking for is we just want the college to modify its policy. We want it to allow students to speak in the open areas of campus spontaneously without prior permission, and um, just uh, and allow them to do that without making a determination as to whether uh, their speech should be favored over others or not. Just allow them to speak. And then the students can decide which ideas they want to adopt and which ones they want to reject. Has the college spoken at all um, with regard to this, either casually or prior to this suit being filed when pressed on this subject? Um, so we have heard, we've spoken with their counsel, and, and we are hoping to speak with them next week. And and, and, you know, again, our goal is just to have a good policy. So if the school is willing to change that, then, you know, then we're, we're hopeful that that would uh, reach a quick resolution before this, you know, the kids come back to campus in the fall. Hopefully they'll be back in campus and we'll have a good policy and Students for Life can go out there and spread their message um, without, you know, these barriers in place. You mentioned earlier that you ADF represents Marcos Sanchez and Emma Howell. I wanted to mention that they are current full-time students at uh, Chemeketa, and they serve as president and co-president um, of uh, Chemeketa Students for Life. I am familiar with these students. I've heard them speak. They're articulate. They're bright. Um, I, I'm very impressed and encouraged as a pro-life person, uh, their ability to articulate the pro-life message uh, in an environment where it may be uh, less popular. So I'm just delighted that ADF, as you always do, has stepped up to provide them an opportunity to challenge what Chemeketa College is doing. And that may embolden um, others across the country, as well as challenge uh, some of these colleges and universities to rethink their policy. So I am very grateful uh, for the work that you all do in general, but uh, this specifically uh, as well. Um, how long do you expect this process to take? You mentioned uh, they have a period of time before they're required to respond, to respond rather. But what uh, what's the timetable? I know everybody's off campus right now, but what are you hopeful uh, about uh, happening on the time scale? Sure. So, I mean, uh, like I said, we're hoping to speak with them next week. And if they're open to changing it, then, you know, it could be a fairly quick resolution if we have to go through litigation Typically, a federal lawsuit is probably you're probably talking about 18 months to 18 to 24 months before you actually you know get a decision from from a judge or from a jury, and so it's quite a long process. Um, that's not our goal. Our goal is to just have the process has the policy changed very quickly. But um, I mean, a lot of that will just depend on how open the college is to revising its policy. 
And again, what you're uh, proposing is um, doing away with these free speech zones that limit what can be said by whom and when. And this was going to impact certainly pro-life students, but also their peers as well. So this will benefit all of the students on that campus. Well, again, I so appreciate the work that uh, you and ADF are doing in this and other cases, and we'll certainly follow with interest what happens in the weeks ahead. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, thank you, Tyson. Appreciate it very much. Tyson Langhofer, Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Academic Freedom. Uh, We're talking about the Chemeketa Community College campus. Daniel Hill is one of the more than 3,100 attorneys allied with ADF. He's serving as the local counsel uh, for the the club in this case. Chemeketa Students for Life versus members of the Chemeketa Board of Education. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Scott Rank. He's the author of History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. They might be scratching your head, but it's really quite fascinating. We'll talk with him about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, I have to tell you, Americans, as my next guest points out in his new book, have no idea what it's what it is to have a truly psychotic leader. Now, some might <laughs> question that, uh, like North Korea's Kim Jong Un or Iraq's Saddam Hussein, um, who could be put on the level of mentally ill. But how do they compare to leaders in the past who took psychotic um, activity to a whole different level? Well, my guest, Scott Rank, is the host of the popular podcast History Unplugged. He puts madness into perspective by presenting the world's most unbelievably deranged leaders and their all-consuming addiction to power in history's nine most insane rulers. Now, can the insane rule? Can insanity be a leadership quality? Well, he takes a fascinating look at nine of history's most notorious rulers from the Roman emperor Caligula to North Korean communist dictator Kim Jong-il, rather, uh, he paints an intimate portraits of these deeply flawed but powerful men, examining the role that madness played in their lives, the repercussions of their madness on history, and what their madness can tell us about the times in which we live. Well, my guest, Scott Rank, is the author of 12 books, including The Age of Illumination, Science, Technology, and the Reason in the Middle Ages, Lost Civilizations, and Off the Edge of the Map, Travelers and Explorers that Push the Boundaries of the Known World. His books have been translated into nine languages. He's an historian of the Ottoman Empire and modern Turkey. He is a professor and a podcaster. He currently hosts History Unplugged, one of the most popular history podcasts today. He lives in Kansas City with his family, probably more closely now than ever before, and joins us to talk about his fascinating book, History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. Scott Rank, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Georgina. appreciate it. This is so fascinating to me. Uh, first of all, how you selected the individuals you highlight, the nine that made the, that made the cut, and what we might learn um, in our own day when we loosely use words like insanity and, and so on. Uh, so first of all, let me ask you, what motivated you to write this book? And did the time we're living in right now in our current spate of leaders inspire you in any way? Yeah, it partially did. Uh, I think what caused it is in 2020 with the presidential election coming up, I think this issue of our politicians and uh, mental illness or even insanity will come up where people on the left might say uh, Donald Trump has narcissistic personality disorder or people on the right would say Joe Biden has dementia. But if you're comparing them to truly insane rulers in the past, like you said, 
imagine if Joe Exotic from Tiger King were your emperor. And we actually had cases like that in the past where someone who was a recent president had an 80 foot tall golden statue of himself that rotated to face the sun. So I get it. Our politicians today are eccentric. They say strange things on Twitter, but I want to at least give a little perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And yes, that people like that can come across, but at least understand what has happened before. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's just give our listeners an opportunity to hear the names of those who made the list. The nine most insane leaders. Who are they? Yeah, a quick rundown is uh, Emperor Caligula of Rome, Charles VI of France, thought he was made of glass, Ivan the Terrible, uh, and Ottoman Sultan Ibrahim, George III of American Revolution infamy, uh, Ludwig II, who uh, built Nishwanstein, the Disney World Castle, uh, Idi Amin of Uganda, uh, Turkmenistan President uh, Turkmenbashi, who had that tall golden statue, and Kim Jong-il, as you mentioned. Now, was it difficult for you to narrow it down to nine? Were there others that... Uh, that might have otherwise made the list, but you were limited in space and time? Or is this really the, the cream of the crop, if you will? Yeah, you're right. I mean, <laughs> the sad thing is there are a lot of people to choose from. Uh, Adolf Hitler, he's not in the book. Joseph Stalin isn't. They ha- people ask me about that. The sad thing is those who killed thousands or millions of their own people, we have a lot of cases of that in the past. Um, what I was looking at was someone who meets uh, the legal definition mm-hmm. of insanity, that they can't determine um, what's real, what's not real, and um, that affects their actions. It's not just struggling with mental illness. That obviously doesn't make someone a bad person. Many of the great leaders in history struggled, like Abraham Lincoln with depression. It's how they acted and how their lack of impulse control and lack of any type of governors on their behavior made them just do terrible things. Yeah, and I I appreciate you're making a distinction between um, clinical insanity and just evil actions. Um, because mm-hmm. there is a there is a difference and a gulf between the two. Early in the book, you write that being mad was perhaps the most appropriate way to rule in mad times. Rulers who were mad, by our definition, could actually have been responding to the most reason uh, responding in the most reasonable way in their circumstances. They faced challenges that were unimaginable today. Explain that statement in light of these nine. Right and. This is something that I always try to understand with history, that conditions were very different, so we need to understand if people seem to do or say things that seem strange. One example of that is Ivan, we call him the terrible of Russia, and he's called the great in his homeland. And um, he lived in the 1500s, killed tens, maybe hundreds of thousands, many of his own countrymen, because he thought that they were possibly going to side with the enemy. Now, part of the reason that I mean, if you want to explain and understand it, he lived um, in a time not too far away from the era of Genghis Khan um, when millions were killed, and he was working on securing his borders and making sure that slave raids didn't come in and capture his own citizens. So he was working very hard to secure his borders. You can definitely argue with what he did and whether he became terrible, but the fact that people call him great means there are those who argue that what he did in his own times was justifiable. And that's definitely a good argument, but you know we don't live in those times, thankfully, so we don't have to think about doing what people did in the past. Yeah, and I appreciate that you give us some context, because that does help us to have a better understanding of the history of these individuals, not just the history that they, uh, that they made. Who do you think was the most insane ruler in history, if it's possible to narrow it down to one? Yeah, it's, uh, I think the argument can be made for anyone, but um, 
One of my favorite, if you can call that, was the president of uh, recent president of Turkmenistan, Akbar Turkmenbashi, who rolled from the early 90s until the mid 2000s. And he almost outdid Joseph Stalin with self-promotion. He had the posters of himself, statues of himself in town squares. He had that 80-foot-tall golden statue of himself I was talking about. He also had a holy book that he wrote himself, even though he wasn't completely literate, and he claimed that God had appeared to him in a dream and said, anyone who reads this three times will get into heaven. And the strangest thing about him is that he doesn't, he doesn't seem cynical. He seems to really believe what he's saying, and he seemed to think that he was doing a good thing for the people of Turkmenistan by giving them a national hero. And I should also mention he renamed the days of the week and months of the year after himself and his mother, and even an asteroid, too. But he thought he was helping people by doing this. Why do you think so many powerful rulers have been insane? I mean, truly insane. Is there a connection between power and insanity? Well, um, sometimes it's genetic. People like George III uh, may have had a blood disease. Maybe mm-hmm. they grew up in traumatic situations. Um, but the best I can argue is if we look at someone like a celebrity and think that they live in a delusional bubble and they're cut off from real circumstances, imagine if a celebrity had the power to had a goon squad and could take someone out if they wanted to. You're isolated from self-criticism criticism from others for years or even decades and if you're somebody like that who doesn't hear criticism, then you get a Muammar Gaddafi or Fidel Castro who will stand up in front of the United Nations and speak for five hours, who will claim like Kim Jong-il that the first time I golfed, I shot 38 under par. And if you already say that, people would laugh at us and they should laugh at us because it's ridiculous. But if nobody can criticize you for fear of their lives and you live in that bubble for years or decades, I think that can lead to the levels of delusion that I saw. Yeah, in fact, that raises the question, how did psychotic, narcissistic, schizophrenic uh, leaders stay in power? Now, we live in a constitutional republic. We elect our leaders. But how did these individuals manage to stay in power? And you sort of hinted at that. Was it even possible to remove them if you'd come to the conclusion that they were, in fact, insane? Right. I mean, we wonder, why didn't people get rid of them? And we can have impeachment trials. We can do all these things in the United States, votes of no confidence in parliament. Oddly enough, it seems that if you're going to be, it's better to be completely delusional than mildly delusional because you can purge people who pose any threat to you. Joseph Stalin did this a lot in the past. Idi Amin in Uganda, one of the first things he did when he became leader of Uganda in the 60s or early 70s was to liquidate opposition. But then he didn't stop there. He went to basically anyone who wasn't 200% in favor of him. And that led to the deaths of 200,000 Ugandans. So, and the other thing too, is there was a a self-censorship. There were many people on the payroll of Idi Amin or Kim Jong-il, and you didn't know if your neighbor or friend was an informant and would turn you over to the police if you were talking about overthrowing someone. So that type of chilling effect, I think, is what allowed someone like this to stay in power for so long. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, the book we're talking about, written by my guest, Scott Rank, History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. And it really is fascinating. I know why your podcast is popular. Uh, It's fascinating to learn something about these individuals uh, and the extent to which they went in their their leadership roles uh, and what we can learn from them in our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a moment. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Scott Rank. He is the author of History's Most Insane Rulers. and It is a fascinating book, giving us the history of nine individuals that you probably would have a hard time uh, believing held positions of power. Uh, but there's a lot to be learned from history, and certainly these nine insane leaders have something to teach us uh, as well. Uh, let me um, focus on some of these individuals that you highlight in the book. Um, uh, King Charles VI of France, he thought he was made of glass. Tell us a little bit about him um, <laughs> that might help us to understand the uh, havoc he, uh, he brought to his people. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So like you said, he thought he was made of glass, and he told his advisors that you have to tiptoe when you come toward me or I might shatter. And he wouldn't take a bath because, again, he thought that he might shatter and break into pieces. Now, why did he believe that? Um, For the same reason that people claim alien abductions today. And what I mean is, um, at that time in the Middle Ages, the analogy of glass was used by preachers and priests to say, you need to be holy and clean like glass. And those who heard that message might have listened to it a little too carefully. Maybe there's self-hypnosis, there's delusion, you, you begin to believe that you really are made of glass. Remember the alien abduction is people didn't claim they were abducted until about the 1950s when Hollywood B-movies started to come out with aliens in them. And people saw them, and due to disassociation from reality, they may have thought that actually happened to them. So that's what happened to him, and France almost completely fell apart when it was under his reign. So not a good situation. And he presumably inherited his position and could not be removed. Right. That's uh, a difference between the past and today. When you had a dynasty, you want one of your offspring to be on the throne, even if they're really not cut out for it, because then your whole dynasty falls apart. Another example was um, an Ottoman sultan, Ibrahim, who um, practiced archery on people in his palace. I mean, he would shoot bows and arrows, would shoot arrows at them. And we don't have dynasties today, except for maybe the exception of North Korea um, and the royalty we have don't really have any power. But that was the motivation of the past, that you need someone in your line on the throne or your dynasty falls apart and we will put anyone there. You know, we'll try to have someone who will basically rule through them and hopefully they'll only be a puppet and won't cause too many problems. But sometimes they couldn't be controlled and that's how things got out of hand. What about Emperor Caligula? He built temples to himself. He made his horse a senator. He marched his armies all the way to Britain for no reason. He built a bridge um, that uh, he rode over back and forth. He pushed some of the people who had come to witness this display over into the river. As many of them drowned. Tell us a little bit about this Roman Emperor Caligula and what it might have been like to live under this kind of ruler. Definitely not pleasant, that's for sure. And when I was talking about people who are disconnected from reality and start to believe that they're divine, Caligula is it. He's an emperor after Augustus when emperors uh, start to accept worship from people. Uh, You mentioned a lot of the things he pointed his horse senator. uh, Probably something that he did that, according to one source, he may have bankrupted Rome or uh, triggered a famine. He, uh, an astrologer said that there's no way you could become emperor. You had just uh, just as much of a chance as becoming one as crossing this gulf that's near Naples that's three miles long. So he has a bunch of pontoon or a boat set up and has a bridge constructed along this gulf and rides back and forth on his horse. And so many boats have to be used to make this bridge that they can't get grain from other ports in Egypt. And 
it triggers a famine. So you think, why does he do this? And if it really did happen, um, somehow thinking that proving that he's this divine status is good for the Roman uh, empire because they have such a great ruler. So in his mind, somehow it made sense. And it's scary to think that someone like that could come to power. Yeah. Not only come to power, but remain in power. Yeah, uh, exactly. You write, it's, um, yeah. You write about, yeah, he was assassinated a few years, but then he was taken out. So there's an end. Yeah, there. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> but there he is mad King uh, Ludwig the second, um, he built himself a fabulous fairy tale castle in the 1800s. Um, he had imaginary friends. He loved to take uh, dangerously high-speed midnight sleigh rides through the Alps, uh, even in blizzards. What's his story? Well, if you have uh, seen pictures of Bavaria and southern Germany, you've definitely seen Neuschwanstein Castle, which is the inspiration for Disney World. And mm-hmm. you've done puzzles. You'll see that picture. Ludwig used his family's wealth to build these fairy tale-like castles, even though it's the 1800s and castles are completely useless for any reason. He is someone that, um, he was much more harmless than a lot of these people. He didn't have people killed. He didn't trigger any famines or anything. He squandered Bavaria's wealth, but you could say he left a legacy because any Frommer's Guide for uh, Germany will take you toward his castles. He was a patron of Richard Wagner, so we have his operas because of Ludwig's patronage. He was a dreamer, and people didn't like him, so that's why he was kicked out of power, because he was so terrible with money. But you know, a lot of great works of art were commissioned by patrons that may not have been as good with their money. So there's anyone who's left a good legacy behind, I would say that it's him. Hmm. Um, there are two contemporaries, um, President Idi Amin of Uganda and Supreme Leader Kim Jong-il of North Korea. We know a little bit of their history if we've been paying attention. Um, similarities, dissimilarities between the two of them who had visions of grandeur in terms of their their personal worth and value and their leadership styles? Yeah, the uh, Idi Amin is, I would say, one of the worst of the lot just because yes. of how sadistic he was. He personally mutilated people, torture them. You can watch the film Last King of Scotland to get an idea of this. Um, He was was celebrated in the beginning because uh, this is when Uganda first gained its independence. He was the second president. Uh, He would mock Great Britain and sent them a boatload full of bananas as a way of thanking them for the days of colonialism. But um, when I mentioned earlier the the fear that people had because an enormous informant network of his was set up, there were maybe ten or 20,000 people on his payroll. 200,000 people died in his torture chambers. And um, Uganda was set back for decades. Its economy was ruined. And with Kim Jong-il, it's usually an exaggeration to compare a country to 1984. But in his case, that almost seems to come true, mm-hmm. where his picture and his father's picture were required to people in everyone's houses. There's a Pledge of loyalty. It sounds like you're saying catechism um, in a church. It's and he seemed to think that I am the embodiment of the will of the Korean people. So when people are praising me and essentially worshiping me, it's good for Korea and it strengthens Korea. And seemed to really think that what he was saying was good for it. Um, but it, North Korea was completely impoverished and people starved. There was a horrible famine in the 90s. Um, mostly because of his self-isolation, mostly because um, there wasn't trade allowed with the outside world. Um, It was completely self-inflicted, and um, whatever he thought he was trying to do for the good of the people, 
really did turn it into a 1984 situation. Yeah, yeah. There are historians who have argued that there's a connection between genius and madness. Um, your thoughts on that? And are we talking about idiot savants who somehow in their insanity have certain elements of genius? Well, um, I'd say that dealing with mental illness, it obviously doesn't make someone evil. I mean, millions of people suffer Correct. depression, doesn't make them a bad person at all. In fact, um, there's an argument that some of the greatest leaders we've ever had, like Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King Jr., all of whom suffered from depression, but it was that inner struggle, which they won, allowed them to deal with outer struggles. And it's um, not so much mental illness that uh, makes you a bad person, but it reveals your true nature. So if you are uh, an innately evil person, then mental illness removes all the governors that you have, and you really do go for it. Um, and then on the flip side, too, people who were um, able to accomplish great things, I mean, I think Ludwig with his castles, he left a lasting mark on society. Uh, George III, someone else who struggled with mental illness, but he was a great patron of the arts. He loved Handel, he loved Baroque music, and he supported it, and that's what allowed it to spread throughout England. So he due to their struggles, they were able to leave some good things behind. So I think that's maybe to their credit, these, some of these people in the book and others as well, like the great leaders in history. Yeah. Well, I think people are looking for good material to read during this time of somewhat isolation and sheltering in place. History's nine most insane rulers, I think is informative. It's uh, somewhat entertaining, but also it's a cautionary tale. Uh, it's book, uh, published by Regnery History. What do you hope your readers will learn as they look back at these leaders uh, in terms of choosing leaders in the future? I guess I'd say this. Um, if there's anything that these people have in common is that they're committing the biggest sin in politics, and that's that they believe their own press. And all politicians do this to some degree, but if someone's in power for too long, then they start to believe it so much that it becomes the only thing true to them. That's what happened to the Kim family. That's what happened to others. So it's probably not going to happen to you. You're probably not going to be ruled by this, but just watch out. I mean, if they start to look too much like people like this, then yeah, time to get plane tickets and go elsewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much for joining us, Scott Rank. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Once again, the title of the book, History's Nine Most Insane Rulers, published by Regnery History. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A couple of things I want to mention before we uh, wrap things up today. The House Democrats have unveiled their coronavirus bill that's estimated to cost $3 trillion in the largest stimulus package yet. Wow. Of the more than $3 trillion package, about $1 trillion would go to state, local, and tribal governments, according to three sources briefed on the proposal. Another round of $1,200 stimulus payments or premiums would also go out to most Americans under the plan with a maximum of $6,000 per household. Then a flurry of cash would be allocated to struggling Americans extending the $600 extra in weekly unemployment insurance through January and a new $175 billion benefit that would subsidize rent and mortgage payments for Americans. House Democrats call the, ele the legislation the HEROES Act. The text of the sprawling plan was circulated on Tuesday. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi spoke earlier uh, in the day. 
on um, the, the details as well. And the Supreme Court uh, questioned limits of congressional subpoena power, presidential immunity, and tax uh, the president's tax returns cases as they waded uneasily into politically charged fight over executive accountability as justices held oral arguments in cases dealing with subpoenas of the president's personal tax and financial records. And in Oregon, no new deaths as a result of the coronavirus, but um, additional 600 additional cases we've learned. Uh, Also today, uh, Oregon-approved counties that will be allowed to begin the first phase of reopening on Friday the 15th. Um, And over the last three weekends, Oregon State University students and healthcare workers have been going to randomly selected homes in Corvallis, offering um, free COVID-19 testing. The findings suggest about two people per 1,000 in Corvallis had the virus when they were tested. And two separate city council Uh, Meetings in Lincoln County included discussion on when and how to reopen parts of the Oregon coast, particularly lodging, as that is such a significant part of their uh, of their income. And postcards are being sent this week to 150,000 households across Oregon, seeking people who will participate in a COVID-19 contact tracing and testing study being done by Oregon Health Authority and OHSU. Well, inside the emergency department at Randall Children's Hospital in North Portland, doctors may be dealing with their first case of pediatric multi-symptom inflammatory syndrome, which is a result of COVID-19. 19 as well. By the way, James, my uh, clock has gone dead. If you can keep an eye on the timing here and let me know when my time has run out, I would greatly appreciate it. Well, Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias has been battling a rare form of bone cancer since March and was recently informed by doctors that his cancer has spread and there's nothing more that they can do medically. On Friday, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries shared a health update from Sarah Davis, CEO of Ravi Zacharias Ministries, and his daughter, who informed the ministry's global uh, staff about his her father's uh, condition. We have just learned that while the tumor in my dad's sacrum has been responding to the chemotherapy, the area where the cancer metastasized is actually worsening. His oncologist informed us that this cancer is very rare in its aggression and that no option for further treatment remains. Medically speaking, they have done all that they are able, she added. Well, Zacharias and his wife, Margaret, were in Houston, Texas during the duration of his treatment, And according to the daughter, they will be returning home to Atlanta, where our family can be together for whatever time the Lord gives us. Well, the announcement comes just a day after Zacharias shared a picture of him and his wife on Instagram to celebrate their 48th wedding anniversary. He captioned the photo, in sickness and in health, and in a short period of time, apparently, till death do us part. He wrote, our 48th wedding anniversary looked different than the others, but three things remain the same. Our love for each other, the gift of family and friends who shower us with kindness, and the abiding faithfulness of our great God. Thanks to everyone who spent greetings and words, or rather sent greetings and words of encouragement to Margie and me on this occasion. Please keep us in your prayers as I battle cancer and accept our heartfelt gratitude for your love and friendship. Well, Zacharias first revealed he had bone cancer on Facebook Back in March, where he announced that doctors had discovered a cancerous tumor on the sacrum, a cancer called sarcoma. The sacrum is the shield-shaped bony structure. It's located at the base of the lumbar vertebrae and is connected to the pelvis. We are trusting the Lord in this, and we believe we have already seen evidence of his hand, he said at the time. We received literally thousands of messages from people all over the world saying, we are praying. 
I have every belief that God directed and prompted my surgeon to this discovery of this tumor. Margie and I and our family are so grateful for your continued prayers for the journey that lies ahead. We are trusting the Lord for his purpose. Please do do also pray that the Lord will take away this horrific night pain, which is the most difficult part of waiting. So do keep um, Rabbi Zacharias and his family in your prayers. Well, to help small churches throughout the U.S. um, affected by the coronavirus pandemic, a coalition of leading Christian groups has announced it's going to extend the church's Helping Churches Challenge and host a major online benefit simulcast to raise additional support for at-risk congregations. Well, the challenge launched last month uh, by and uh, the AND campaign and other Christian organizations has created a coronavirus at-risk church relief fund that provides three hundred, or rather $3,000 grants to small churches that are at risk of closing within the next three months due to the steep loss of financial giving. The initial goal of the fund was to, to uh, raise some $500,000 during the month of April from Christian donors, foundations, and large churches. Over the course of the month, the challenge has raised $431,000 from 471 donors and identified 125 churches for said grants. Well, in a statement to the Christian Post, those behind the challenge said the initiative will continue throughout May as need far outweighs the available funds as just over 1,200 churches have applied for assistance. I have been blown away by the generosity of the body of Christ, but I have been overwhelmed and saddened by the great need that existed that exists rather with many churches and communities across America. That's a quote from Justice, uh, rather Justin Giboni, president of the AND campaign. We serve a God that is the hope of the world, and he is moving and ministering through many of these small churches. Now is the time for us to come together to bear each other's burdens. Well, to help at-risk churches uh, survive during this pandemic, partner organization Pulse will host an online benefit simulcast on the 15th of this month to raise additional support for these congregations. By the way, the simulcast, also sponsored by Right Now Media and Reach Records, will be broadcast at togethergeneration.com slash chc. All proceeds go directly to the churches. Again, togethergeneration.com slash chc to help these churches that are struggling. Well, tomorrow on the program, I'm not sure what's happening. James and I have uh, have ongoing conversations about uh, what's going on from day to day. It's uh, challenging to book guests these days, as many people are not as available as one might uh, might hope. Uh, but we're hoping for an interview on um, President Monroe uh, sometime tomorrow. We'll see if we can uh, make that happen. And Pastor Rich Jones is going to join us, and we are excited at the prospect that we're going to be able to take phone calls on that day. It's not possible uh, the way we are um, situated and s- set up right now. But Pastor Jones, we're going to deal with the question of whether or not uh, churches are being uh, discriminated against. We have a lawsuit against the governor of Oregon and in several other states as well, suggesting that this shelter-in-place rule is a violation of the rights of churchmen to gather together. We'll uh, take uh, the opportunity to talk with a pastor who holds a position that may be contrary to those who filed suit and give you an opportunity to weigh in as well. We'll see if we can pull all of that off, but that would be on Thursday. So we're looking forward to that. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. I love him, by the way. We've been married 38 years. Did I mention that? We just celebrated our anniversary. Anyway, thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night, and I hope you'll join us here again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.